Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Syra Rao, Democratic candidate for Congress in Colorado's first. In December 2017, the Huffington Post published a piece of yours titled, I'm a brown woman who's breaking up with the Democratic Party. Now you're primarying an established Democratic incumbent. What has been your journey with the Democratic Party and how has it brought you to where you are today? So I uh, have been a Democratic Party activist my whole life. I'm now 44. My first vote was cast for Bill Clinton when I was 18. And I have spent, you know, the better part of 25 years really pounding the pavement to get Democrats elected, knocked doors, made calls, um, housed volunteers here. My daughter and I knocked doors every day after school. She was only seven in the fall of 2016, and we did that every day together, um, raised a ton of money, have held fundraiser after fundraiser. And, you know, for the first time, asked for something in return last year, post-November uh, 2016. And... And backing it up, I'm an Indian American. My, my kids are brown. I'm brown. My husband's brown. And we have experienced more racism since uh, that election than we have collectively in our lives before that. And, you know, uh, I went and talked to some representatives last year over the course of the year, different ones in different states, as well as here in Colorado, and, and said, you know, what are you doing to protect your brown and black communities? And what are you doing about DACA? And what are you doing about... The Muslim bans and across the board, what I heard was stop making everything about race and we have bigger problems in this country. And that is the dictionary definition of white privilege when race and violence against brown and black bodies is not a top priority for you. That is, you know, my number one priority. I'm worried every day that someone in my family is going to get killed. And we have brown and black people getting shot in the street every day by police officers. Yet folks in Congress won't even say the words Black Lives Matter. We have brown people right now getting separated, ripped apart from their children, put into cages. Their kids are put in jumpsuits. That's a big problem. That's fascism. We have fascism right now. You know, these conversations happened over the course of last year, and it led me to write this article. I'm a brown woman who's breaking up with the Democratic Party for the Huffington Post. And just to give you a sense of timeline, this was less than six months ago. And it really kind of outlined how I felt tokenized and taken for granted. And the party wanted my votes and my money and my networks and my influence. But when I wanted something in return, i.e. answers in terms of racial justice, uh, they didn't want to give it to me. And so I wrote that and the article went totally viral. And the response fell into three buckets. One was from party establishment people who basically by Felicia me and told me to go away that I was a party traitor. Uh, on the other extreme, bright, uh, brown, black, white, gay, straight, male, female, we used to think that the Democratic Party was a lesser of two evils. Now we think they're worse than Republicans because they're hypocrites. We're no longer voting. And then a bunch of people saying, why don't you run for office? I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. I have two small kids and have spent the past six and a half years with my friend Carrie building our business in this together media. We create diverse kids books. So kids books with brown, black, gay, disabled, trans kids, kids you normally don't see as protagonists in books. And our company had finally really taken off last fall. And so it just felt like a crazy notion for me to just run for Congress. Over Christmas, I really had a hard time sleeping and I realized it was keeping me up at night. And it's the following. We have tons of career politicians in Congress, people who have spent decades there. They have 100% safe seats and they're not using their power and privilege to advocate for the disenfranchised. They are taking millions of dollars from corporate PACs and essentially sitting on their hands. So when we think about 
Why do we not have a clean dream act? It's because dreamers don't have a super PAC. Why are we trashing the earth? It's because the earth doesn't have a super PAC. I thought to myself, if I don't use my power and privilege, I'm able-bodied. I have class privilege. I can afford childcare. My husband's supportive. If I don't use my privilege to at least challenge the status quo, then shame on me. So I was one of the last people in this country to file with the FEC to enter the midterm elections. And in five months, in less than five months, actually, we've gone from zero to 60 and we are poised to win this primary. Being able to unseat the 22-year-old chief deputy, 22-year incumbent chief deputy whip in that amount of time uh, would just be an extraordinary thing. Could you tell us about the policy differences between you and the incumbent? According to 538, your incumbent only voted with Trump about 11% of the time. To a lot of people, that kind of sounds like good enough. Why is that not truly the case? Sure. Um, I think I want to reframe that. And I think that this narrative of flipping red to blue uh, is really just part of the picture. I think we've got to go blue to true blue. So, so let's see what happened in November 26th. Let, let's see, let, let's use history as a guide. So who didn't show up to vote? Brown and black people didn't show up to vote. Young people didn't show up to vote. The Rust Belt didn't show up to vote. The Obama coalition fell apart. The status quo gave us Donald Trump. The reason we have Donald Trump is because, I mean, in addition to white supremacy and, and all these other things, it's because the, the old Democratic voters didn't show up to vote because they didn't see themselves in the candidates and in the party. I also think we've come to expect so little from our elected representatives that we think voting well enough is, is all there is to the job. Voting is a fraction of being a representative. So let's look at the word being in your district, listening to your community folks and going and advocating for them. That's what being representative, checking the boxes is not being a representative. So number one, in terms of differences, um, Representative DeGette has taken over $5 million in PAC money. She's a, she gets a ton of money from healthcare companies and big pharma. I don't think that corporate PAC money and politics is a sideshow. I think it's the main event. So we wonder why we are the richest country on the planet, but we don't have healthcare equity. Why is that? It's because representatives are answering to the healthcare industry and pharmaceutical companies and not to people. So that's not a small thing. I think that's number one. And it's really dishonest to say that this is all the fault of Citizens United. The Supreme Court didn't say you have to take corporate money. They wrote a horrific opinion saying that you can take it, but you don't have to take it. So just don't take it and and or and or pass comprehensive campaign finance reform so we can we can really change and move the needle on that. That's number one. Number two, I am an advocate of, of elimination of student loan debt. So Congress just gave corporations a $1.4 trillion tax cut. That happens to be the exact same number of dollars that we are sitting on right now. 24 million Americans are sitting on $1.4 trillion in student loan debt. And I think we just have to eliminate that. And we can do it. The money is there. The priorities in Congress are not. Um, I think it's shameful, shameful for people who have been in Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, that we don't have a clean dream act, period. That's why Obama had to pass the executive order. Denver has a huge number of dreamers. Representative DeGette should have been fighting tooth and nail to pass a clean dream act all these years. And it's shameful she hasn't. That would be one of the top things that I would do. Comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship. Fight, 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 defund ICE, defund ICE. She's not once said that we need to defund ICE. I think we've got to defund ICE. Look at what's, again, look at what's happening right now on the border. 
And I will say loud and proud every single day in my life that black lives matter. And there's a ton of stuff that goes along with that. So criminal justice reform, ending the school to prison pipeline, really focusing on public education and talking about race in a meaningful way so we can actually attack and deal with this police brutality epidemic that we have in this country. It is an epidemic and nobody in Congress is talking about it. And and that's shameful. And in terms of gun uh, legislation, first of all, again, money and politics, the NRA is why we're in that situation. But we need to get federally funded uh, research and then we can actually pass meaningful gun reform legislation. Um, Representative Degat has been in office for 22 years and has actually carried two bills in 22 years. I think that it's just time for a change. We can do better. So I was going to dive into immigration. You covered a lot of what I was planning on asking. And it's great to hear that you are for the defunding of ICE. Something that I think is very notable is that we've seen a lot of democratic resistance among the establishment to Trump's family separation at the border policy. But kind of as you mentioned, these Democrats are the same Democrats who voted to establish the DHS, who voted to fund ICE without any oversight for 15 years years. And when they say comprehensive immigration reform, all they mean is a DREAM Act. But as I'm sure you know, the DREAM Act would only cover about 30% of undocumented people. So how is it not family separation when you legalize deporting parents and grandparents, undocumented elders, but keeping their children? Do you support creating a pathway to citizenship for undocumented elders as well as youth? Absolutely. And that's a great question. So our immigration policy is mired in white supremacy. Like we, we don't have a situation of tons of Norwegians getting separated or left behind, right? So let's let's acknowledge that. Let's talk about that. And and it is shameful. I've got family who, you know, have waited 19, 20 years to become citizens and they still have it. They're paying taxes. So yes, of course, absolutely a path to citizenship for everybody, not just young people, but everybody, elders, adults, everybody. We have to acknowledge that our policy is racist and we gotta change it. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done there. But I do think empathy is 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 woefully missing from our country and from our Congress. And so I, I, I believe that we need to have way more people of color in Congress who actually have experienced these things to know that it's not like a small thing and it's not something that we can keep waiting for, but we need to get this stuff done right away. So could you tell us more about the policies that you hope to implement regarding supporting Black Lives Matter and reforming our criminal justice system? We have to look at this from a very sort of holistic standpoint. And so I was asking um, a friend recently who's who's a criminal justice expert. And I said, you know, what's the what's the number one thing that would affect the school to prison pipeline? And she said uh, early childhood education, you know, not just K through 12, but but starting at like two and three years old. So I think as a country, we have to start deciding that that's a priority because you've got kids coming into kindergarten and they've never been in school and Wealthy kids who are born to wealthier families have been in preschool and have already started learning. And so you're already starting at five years old at a disadvantage, right? You also have kids who are going to school hungry. You can't learn when you're hungry. We have schools that are falling apart. And uh, these schools that are falling apart are in poorer neighborhoods and poor neighbor overwhelmingly are brown and black neighborhoods. So I think that is a really good place to start is is early childhood education, really, really backing public, you know, public dollars behind early childhood education, 
public schools, and then sort of up into a, a elimination of student loan debt, which would go a long way in these in these communities, um, and also free public universities, uh, you know, four-year public universities. I think that's a great place to start. Look, I don't have all the answers. I do know that we having having a national dialogue on the, on these issues is a big one and the fact that we haven't had any truth and reconciliation around the genocide of indigenous people and slavery we've just pretended like none of that has happened truly it's 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 a little bit crazy actually if you if you think about it we don't talk about it we don't acknowledge it and we know you cannot attack any problems until you acknowledge them and talk about them. So I would advocate, I mean, remember we saw Starbucks having like the day of talking about race. I think it'd be great if we could have some, some like national conversations about that. And in terms of criminal justice, how about this? We know that incarceration doesn't work. And what we see right now, we're seeing private prisons, you know, everywhere people are making money. Every single person who's incarcerated, people are making money off of that now. That is absolutely disgusting. It's modern day slavery. Our prisons are overflowing with brown and black people. And we know when they get out, it's not like, you know, um, restorative justice is happening and, and we're really investing dollars and in bringing these people back into society. They go right back to prison. And what if we came up with pilot programs, congressionally funded pro pilot programs all over the country with alternatives to prison? And we could figure out the best way to actually um, rehabilitate instead of just punitive. We can focus on mental health. We can focus on addiction. Right now, we're criminalizing and incarcerating people for being depressed and for having anxiety and for having addiction issues. And that's just wrong. It's wrong and it's not working. And then in terms of bills, there's one out there right now called the Marijuana Justice Act that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are pushing, and that is to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level and then expunge all prior convictions and then pump in a ton of dollars into restorative justice and really work to rebuild these communities that have been devastated by mass incarceration. Could you tell us about the rest of your platform and how policies regarding economic justice are tied into racial justice as well? So I think that the biggest one, there, so when I talk to people over um, all over CD1, here's what I'm hearing over and over again. Number one, lack of affordable housing. So there's an affordable housing crisis all over the country. And what we hear from a lot of representatives around the country is that's a local issue. That's not, that's not a federal issue. That is not true. Nothing, it, nothing is just a local issue. So from a procedural standpoint, I think a really good place for us to start is to start acknowledging that some of these seemingly intractable problems like homelessness and lack of affordable housing, there's got to be communication between local, state and federal governments. And so for me, that would start by really getting more federal funding into housing and then getting those dollars into District 1. So that's number one. Number two, again, the elimination of student loan debt. I've talked to people here and it's it's really insane. So we're dealing right now with the 1%, 99% situation. This is this is dictionary definition, third world. And the people in the, in the bottom 99%, these are people, lots of people who were sold the American dream and got the American nightmare instead. Predatory lending and they're working two, three jobs. They cannot afford rent. They cannot afford housing here in Denver. The average cost of a single family house is half a million dollars and they can't afford to start families. They can't afford for retirement. So um, and, and this is really disproportionately affecting communities of color. So that's sort of the, the tie there. 
eliminating that would go a really, really long way. And I think in turn, another thing that I really love to do is focus on getting government contracts into communities of color where they can actually, you know, grow their own businesses and hire people in their own communities uh, and actually start creating wealth, generational wealth. I think that'd be very important as well. Obviously, raising the federal minimum wage is, is a big one. What would you want to raise the minimum wage to? I'd say $15 an hour. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called C-Note is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings, all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average C-Note customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with C-Note, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is going to help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses, build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With C-Note, you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics. And know that C-Note does not charge any fees. There are no minimums. And sign up take less than five minutes. Check them out. Something that really stands out to me that I haven't seen in a lot of candidates is that you use activist language. You are very aware of intersectionality and activism. I think a big concern in the activist scene regarding electoral politics is that people get corrupted very easily. They lose sight of their activist values. They end up becoming very defensive if they're criticized. And I think we've actually seen that happen before. What do you say to people who aren't really concerned concerned with electoral politics, you don't trust electoral politics, what do you tell them to inspire trust and get them to know that you will still be an activist in Congress? That's a really great question. I have not gotten that one yet, and I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I've met with communities, and it's been really heartbreaking to me, frankly. I've met with communities here who said, you're the first person who has ever run for office, let alone someone who's in office, who's ever run for office, who's come here to talk to us and listen to us. And there's a neighborhood here, Globeville, Swansea, that the most outrageous thing is happening. It's the expansion of an interstate here, I-70. And it's it's just awful. I mean, it's it's gonna be an environmental disaster. It's a it's crushing communities of color. It's it's it, it, they have the worst levels of asthma, asbestos. Their kids are playing in playgrounds with asbestos. And this happened on the watch of our local, state, and federal officials. And it's despicable. And it's not going to even decrease traffic is what they think. It's widening the highway is going to decrease traffic. We all know that that doesn't happen. It actually does the opposite. So even their stated goal is not right. But a woman there who... Um, her sister has cancer. Her mother has cancer. They all have autoimmune diseases, all from living in this one place. It has the worst air quality in the entire country. You know, I came and I sat there for a couple hours. I listened. I asked questions. And at the end of it, she said, why should I trust you? Why, like, how do I know? Why should I trust you? And I said, you're, you're going to have to take, you know, I, I, I'm not going to I can't say anything to make you trust me. And I completely understand why you don't. Um, but I guess you're going to have to kind of give me a chance. The other hasn't worked yet. 
And so uh, here, that's the thing. Anyone who comes in and tells you, trust me, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. That's why I also hate kind of getting into the weeds on policy and what I would do and what I would not do. I'm not in Congress, but I can tell you what, like, you know, macro, what I would love to see. But in terms of trust, trust comes from showing up. And uh, I would have to continue to show up. And if I don't show up and if I started taking corporate PAC money, I hope to God that people would vote me out of office because that's what I would deserve. And I think we need to vote every single person out of office who has not shown up for the community. They've had many, many years. They've had decades in some cases, and they have not shown up for the community. And they do take corporate PAC money. Those folks need to be voted out. And the rest of us need to be given a chance. And if we disappoint, we should be voted out as well. We should be held accountable. So one of the biggest criticisms of the Democratic Party is that it doesn't have a clear foreign policy vision. And I sort of disagree with that. I think congressional Democrats are basically Republican light. They fundamentally see the military industrial complex and American imperialism as A-OK. They haven't done much to oppose it. They haven't done much to fundamentally change the worldview that's pushed us into the Iraq war, that's pushed us to creating refugees, then not letting them in. I think a really good example is the fact that Democrats are currently criticizing Trump from the right on North Korea. They're dismissing monumental peace efforts that are overwhelmingly supported by the Korean people. What do you see as your ideal people's democratic foreign policy vision? And what do you think of the democratic response to North Korea? Two very good questions. So I guess I'm going to start by saying um, I, I agree with everything that you just said. And I think we are in a highly problem. And, and, and it's very important what you said. We have created, let's be clear, we have created the situations that so many people in Central America are fleeing, right? So let's, let's, let's connect the dots here. We create these situations. We create the violence. People do what anybody else would do. They grab their families and they try to run for safety. Once we once they get to our border, we re-traumatize them and we are criminalizing them now for fleeing violence that we created. And I don't know that most Americans get that. I think that we really do believe we've, we've bought into this narrative that we're better than everybody else. We bought into this narrative that we're immune and impervious to history. And as a result, I don't think that Americans are seeing that what we have in, in our own country is fascism. So I want to start there. I think right now in this moment, in this very moment, we need to stop trying to, quote, spread democracy everywhere because we don't have democracy at home. And that is what we have to focus on right now is is reclaiming whatever sense of democracy we ever had in the, in the past. But but wrestle fascism out of this country and really, really figure out how how our democracy is going to work before we start pushing it on anybody else. And I think it's disgusting and despicable. And look, I mean, Barack Obama was the deporter in chief. Like, I don't think he had a terrific sense of foreign policy ever. Like what happened? You know, it's it, he, he, had, he wasn't he wasn't terrific. And in terms of North Korea. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is very dangerous. I think it's hard for anybody to say Donald Trump has done anything good at this point. Um, because he really is just such an awful person. And he is a open and notorious fascist, white supremacist, rapist, and him being caught on tape saying how awesome it was that Kim Jong-un's people stand up and like bow down and bend the knee. And that's what he wants of his people. I think in some ways he's undermined whatever, like whatever good little good he's done. I think 
his actions and words have undermined that. And so um, it's hard for me to, it, you know, I have to be fair. It's hard for me to, to say anything he's done is good. But yes, uh, it is of import that people in the Koreas are very grateful for what he's done. And I think that we need to take that into consideration. If elected, you would be the first woman of color in Colorado's congressional delegation. What does that mean to you? You know, it's sort of the same reason Carrie and I started in this together media. We know two things in life. You can't connect with story unless you see yourself in story and that representation matters. And that's not just in media, that's in life. So that's in sports, that's in medicine, that's in law. And representation matters because you actually need people who have intimately personal experiences with things to be able to properly advocate for them. So I think that if we had a ton more brown and black people in Congress, um, again, we, we would have comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship. So what that means to me is we have nine people in Congress from Colorado. Everybody is white. That is not representative. Thirty five percent of Colorado's congressional district one are people of color. And I have my parents are immigrants and I'm a first generation American. And I have a sense of what it's like to live the Im immigrant experience. And none of these nine folks do. And so that's what I mean when I say representation matters. I know these communities. I'm in these communities. And it's time for us to pay attention to the communities that have been disenfranchised and left behind. It's time to make sure that all boats rise. And that's not the case right now. And that's not the case on the watch of this nine person, you know, Colorado congressional delegation. So something I think that makes politics very difficult for women of color is that there's a solid chunk of outright white supremacists and rapists who are accepted by everyone else, even those who call themselves allies in the Democratic Party. Something I'm curious about is how, as a member of Congress, you would interact with colleagues like Steve King if he doesn't win re-election. You know, Steve King is an outright neo-Nazi. He doesn't believe in the humanity of women of color. How would you navigate that in Congress? Yeah, that's a good question. So again, I want to start by there's billions of Steve Kings everywhere, right? He, there's, there's lots of them running around. And um, we were told by a publishing company early on that 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 laughed at us in our face uh, and said that white boys sell. So that's a version of white supremacy. Right. And what did we do? We, we, we just sort of nodded and shook hands and walked away and kept doing our thing. And, you know, a couple of years later, we are an incredibly successful book packaging company. And and this and this company, this publishing company desperately wants to buy some of our books now. So. I think that when you actually just approach things from a place of of doing the right thing and you're willing to sit down and have a conversation with everyone at the table, which I'd be very happy to do with the Steve Kings of the world and come to a compromise, I think that can happen in, in any situation. I really do. And I'll tell you what, what's been really exciting in the past five months for me is I've met plenty of white quote liberal democrats who think that they're you know super woke and allies and they're not and and early on in this race which is again it's so funny it was only five months ago so five months ago um, i was getting trolled by people on facebook and twitter and email and a lot of these folks have come around and in in five short months they've actually shown up for events where i'm speaking about racial justice they've shown up 
at, at d the debates and the forums and they've come around. So I do think if we can actually just sit down and listen to each other, there's a way to come to a really much better place. I, I don't give up on anyone, frankly, and um, I'm happy to sit down and talk to anybody. As you definitely know, this month is Pride Month. Could you talk about what you want to do as a member of Congress to support the LGBTQ community? Sure, yeah. We just partook in a bunch of really wonderful festivities this weekend. Hate crimes have really skyrocketed since November 2016, not just in communities of color, but also uh, against LGBTQ folks. And so I think we really need to beef up condemning that. That's number one. Healthcare too. Uh, when we talk about healthcare equity, members of the LGBTQ community have been really left out of healthcare equity, and that's a big part of it. So healthcare for all, and with a really, really, really strong sense of making sure that everybody, including those in the LGBTQ community, get everything that they need. Those would be two things right out of the gate. So regarding healthcare, right now, transgender affirmation procedures are considered cosmetic. Now, these procedures have been found to reduce depression and anxiety and reduce suicidal ideation. Would you support reclassifying these as reconstructive instead? Uh, I would support making sure that everybody has their... Um, Yes, that, that they get covered for that. I think that's outrageous. It's not cosmetic. That's absolutely outrageous. Great. So lastly, if folks are interested in learning more about you or getting involved in your campaign, where can they find you online? Sure. Thanks. Uh, www.syra, and that's spelled S-A-I-R-A, for congress.com. And I'd appreciate all the support on the planet. Our primaries on Tuesday, June 26th. Okay, awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck in your primary. And thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Take care. You too. So for our listeners, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.